Welcome back to a new episode of the Parole Podcast with me, Alexandra Yamoyaboui. In this episode, I have invited a Ugandan changemaker, Abraham Banadella. Abraham is what I call a serial entrepreneur. He shares his first endeavor in farming with his mother before starting his current company, Utilis Ventures. What is Utilis Ventures? According to the website, it is a financial services company using decentralized financial solutions technologies to fight inequality and grow prosperity on the African continent by thinking and innovating beyond the boundaries of the mainstream. For those of us who enjoy talking about government bonds, T-bonds, share and ROI, this conversation will open your eyes on the immense opportunities hidden in Africa and in this case, in the Ugandan economy. For those who might fear this interview is not for them, let me assure you that you'll learn something because Abraham brings a fresh perspective to what you might hear and not understand in the media. They just say that he is able to connect with pop culture to explain some complex economic lessons. Finance, economy, or politics may be controversial subjects in some countries, even in some families, but it's best when it is confronted rather than brushed to the side. Technology is bringing Africans to a new level of creativity, entrepreneurship, and you can be part of this wave. If you're interested in learning more about the tech ecosystem, you can check African Tech Roundup, where you hear from the dealmakers and changemakers operating in Africa. Why African Tech Roundup? Well, because I am producing it, and along with a great team, we are creating the best of the African tech ecosystem. Parole is available on all major podcast platforms. You can follow the Instagram page, Parole Podcast. And let me plug myself again. As a producer of a sports podcast, Sportive, let me invite you to follow Sportive, also available on all major platforms. Listen, comment, and share. Who are you? Okay, my name is Abraham uh, Banadawa. Pronunciation bothers a lot of people, so I try and say phonetically, but it'll be Banadawa. Banadawa <laughs> Abraham. I am the one of the founders and the CEO of a fintech startup mm-hmm. based in Kampala, Uganda. I was essentially born and raised here. I went abroad to do my studies and some work in the US. And then I found my way back home, and it's been an interesting six or seven years since then. All right. So uh, for those who know Africa, obviously, they do know that we do have schools and we do have great schools, you know, for those who are in the know. And for those who don't know, what was it like to to be a child and or a teenager, actually, in Kampala, I guess? I was, it was a lot of fun. I don't know, maybe it's when you grow up, you become jaded, but like <laughs> being... <laughs> Being a kid in Kampala was so much fun growing up, especially when I was growing up. It was that, you know, sort of end of the millennium, all the tech was coming into into East Africa. We had satellite TV, we were getting cell phones, we were, (laughs) malls were springing up so we could go to the mall and just do nothing at the mall because that's what kids in, you know, but my life was dominated by two things, books and basketball, really. You Come know? on. I have to say, we didn't have malls in Burundi, and we still don't, actually, which is somehow, I guess, a good thing. I don't know. But we did, ha- we did have, like, the open markets for food mm-hmm. and for clothes. And we did spend a lot of time with the, on the clothes market. So, yeah. And I think that's the thing with kids. Kids will have fun anywhere, you know? <laughs> <laughs> you really, it doesn't take much to have a good time. 
Um, so tell me, how many languages do you guys speak? Because obviously I spoke to a Tanzanian. I know, you know, Kiswahili, obviously. Uganda, how many languages? Uganda, well, 56 dialects and languages in Uganda. I think being at the edge of the Rift Valley, they just, you know, when Berlin Conference or whatever, where they drew up the map and put all these different tribes of people together, you have so many different uh, dialects. But Swahili kind of fell out of fashion with the last regime. So the, the, the national language is English, and that's the language you, you learn at school. Mm-hmm. And the capital city is, is located in the Buganda Kingdom. So that's probably the second most prevalent language because, you know, it became a language of commerce and trade. So you need to know Luganda. There are so many beautiful languages. I mean, Ateso, there's Acholi, there's Langi, there is Lunyar College. We have people who speak Chikanda here, you know. There's Gisu. People do speak Kiswahili. Okay. The most prominent languages would probably be English and Luganda. Ah, okay. And how many do you speak? Uh, uh, yeah, I'm uh, native fluency in both. Okay. Uh, I can kind of understand a lot the local Bantu dialects. So, you know, the Lusoga, Nyankole. I remember I, I took Chinese uh, at university. My because why not China and <laughs> I haven't spoken it in four or five years since coming home um, and of course you know part of the curriculum you had to learn you know another uh, language like German or French so I, mm-hmm. I have horrible tourist levels French right like <laughs> like I can I can <laughs> reach and ask for directions that that is about it <laughs> Well, well, I like you have to have the the American confidence, you know, the level of confidence. So like, yeah, I'm super fluent in this language. You're like, oh, okay, go ahead. And if it happens to be French, you're like, okay, just chill, go ahead. And then they speak <laughs> one sentence that makes no sense because okay, it's okay. And they're like fluent, and you're like, do you understand the meaning of being right? fluent? I'm just asking, you know. <laughs> I'm not even sure if you're fluent in English. Like fluent, that's not what fluent. <laughs> There you go. But okay, wow. I did take Spanish though, not Chinese. We do love languages. You grew up in a place that was fun, you know, uh, happy memories. You go to the US. What happened there? What did you study there? Being a 90s baby in Kampala, this was back in the era where there were key professions, right? Uh, I went to high school, which was supposed to I guess it still is. As far as government schools got the best uh, high school in the country, I went mm. to St. Mary's you know, abbreviated as SMAC. I did sciences at A-level. I knew right away I didn't want to do university here. I sat for SATs. I did uh, quite well, and I got into a bunch of universities in Florida because I hate the cold. I looked for the closest thing to the tropics, <laughs> and I got in to do uh, pre-med. Uh, because I was on the med school program. I was on the advanced curriculum. So med school uh, is what would be the equivalent of, uh, of a postgraduate school mm-hmm. uh, in the US. It's not, it's not uh, undergrad. I didn't want to be a doctor, you know? My family wanted me to be a doctor, but, you know, America, you have guidance counselors and teachers and everyone's really <laughs> honest with you and you can change your mind. 
uh, I was doing really well. And I remember my advisor called me to his office and he said, it's not often I tell a really good student, like one of my top students not to apply to med school. And I was like, why? And he's like, look at your curriculums. You know, you, we have to beg you to sign up for American Medical Student Society. You, you, you didn't want to do anything in biology club. You like science, but you don't want to be a doctor. And I asked him if he could tell my parents. And he said, no, I had to fight my own back. So I filled in the, 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 the form to change my major from, because I was a double major. I was doing chemistry and biology. And yeah, fun stuff. <laughs> oh my goodness. And yeah, I, I took, I dropped chemistry to a minor and then I added business administration. I called my mom and I said, I don't want to go to med school. This woman who would call me every other day was so mad. She talked to me for like six weeks. Funny enough, during that period, one of our friends got a really rich dad, poor dad, and she forgave me for not wanting to be a doctor. <laughs> so... Yeah, I graduated with uh, degrees in biology, business administration, and a minor in chemistry. And you get the, you know, the typical job offers for that skill set with like, you know, British Petroleum, Shell, interesting companies. I remember, yeah. the, well, our school used to have a, a, an internship program with Lockheed Martin. And as a kid... You think they sell jets, right? They sell like jet fighters. Why would they hire someone of, like me? officially? <laughs> right? <laughs> there was a lot going on, and I decided to come home for a year before applying to do my master's. Essentially, things there's a lot happening at home. I never left, you know. So that was it. Like I it was supposed to be a short trip. And you say goodbye to DP and Lockheed. <laughs> yeah, I was like, ah oh, no, let me think about it and I'll, you know maybe i'll do my master I, I used to want to be tony stark i thought tony stark was the coolest owl i applied to do a master's in like you know biotechnical engineering and build all these amazing things and i have found out one company owns 80 percent of the world's biotech because you apply and find yourself in the same time <laughs> it, was, it was really creepy it was like a bond villain moment you're like what guys are everywhere <laughs> like they had like they had a map of my hometown of Kampala and the research facilities in Kampala and in Kenya and Rosh owns the world you know so I was like ah, we'll deal with that later you know but I came home there was a lot going on and I am my mother's oldest son so mm. you know, naturally I felt you know responsible to, to try and help out at home and yeah suffice to say Every other year you think about maybe going and getting a master's degree, but then it's that battle between people wanting, you know, postgraduate on your resume as opposed to the real life value of, you know, two years away from work. Yeah. And study online with things like Coursera and yeah. Udemy. I haven't got around to doing it yet. So <laughs> no, but it's funny because it's not like you sat around and waited for, I don't know, for something to flow on, you know, on your plate or something is that you started a company. So for me, I think let's just go back to being Africans. And, you know, the moment we realized like we can go home and obviously things happen, family or any other uh, project that can mess up our own project sometimes. What did you see? Like you land home for you you're thinking okay I'm staying here six months a year 
you do see the opportunities. Okay, I know Uganda is not like South Africa in terms of economy, but somehow you guys are doing pretty well because I'm comparing in the region pretty much, you know, better than the average, let's just say. What were you thinking as this diaspora kid who thinks he's better than <laughs> the average Ugandan person? Of course. Like, it's so weird because I think America did such a good job of exporting their culture with the NBA and MTV and movies yeah. that I didn't get culture shock when I went to university. I got culture shock when I came back. So, <laughs> you know, five years and change, you know, living and working in uh, studying, living, working in the US, you get accustomed to certain things and then you come back and you're just like, wait, what? So, <laughs> Uh, Florida is a farming state, right? Amongst other things. And a lot of the richest people I met, the old money at the university I went to, these were families that had been farming miles of oranges or strawberries or what have you for generations. Like mm -hmm. I remember there was, a, there was this guy called Todd. He was doing horticultural science and agroengineering. So basically, the science of flowering plants and mm. tractors because they own what 25 miles of orange groves right so that's the family business so he had to get better the family business but it doesn't snow in florida but it, you, you have what you call ground frost where the ground gets mm. close to freezing and that kills off the roots so there's a lot of science in keeping these plants alive and fertilizing and rain and weather and hurricanes. And I, I come back to Uganda, I'm like, Uganda is amazing. As in farming here is a no brainer, right? I decided to start a farm. And that's where the, the, you know, the plot twist happens, the hard left. <laughs> There's no financing, you know, like <laughs> in the States, you have land, you walk into the city council and they help you get funding so you can start farming. There's no ready access to financing. There is no ready access to support, technical support, materials. You know, there's no website that you can book services on. You have to know a guy who knows a guy who owns a tractor. Just seem like common sense. You have the equator, the soil is fertile, labor is cheap. You should farm, right? Um, no, <laughs> there are lots of systems that have been put in place by some of these countries to make farming an attractive mm. proposition to a young person. A lot of those systems, when I came back, were non-existent. I mean, it's been roughly seven years, and the government's come a long way in improving what it was. But the shock I went through, I mean, even contract guarantees. I had an outgrower contract, and, you know, as naive, I didn't check it. When it was convenient, I was left holding, you know, I was left holding tons of produce, with no local market and you know i took i took a major loss you know i went bankrupt it was it was shocking like these are things that you're not prepared for but it, it's the reality of not understanding what you where you where you are and what you're doing <laughs> honestly i remember sometimes i'm thinking like either two things either in africa and i'm thinking about the Rift valley as you said east africa we like the land you just put a seed there and then it grows like in 10, in 10 seconds. One thing I'm asking, 
don't we know that tractors exist? And I think like for you, we did have the same, you know, I think childhood when you grew up, you're, because you're watching uh, DSTV or Mnet, whatever, you think that sports looks like the Premier League, for example. And you think like everybody plays like Manchester United and everybody plays like Michael Jordan. No, we do know the reality. But in mm -hmm. terms of technicalities, I assume that some governments, come on, they do know that farm, we need to eat. Like the country, like Burundians were 90, 95% farmers. So yeah. I'm pretty sure I need to eat like a potato from Burundi and somehow it's a hustle for all those all these farmers i don't need to go to the u.s to know, to learn that i'm like i know there's a tool here i know there's a person who understands the land land management uh you know everything and i have a bus this business acumen abraham can help da, da, da. like and somehow it's just like the toughest things to do well i think you know one of the problems is traditionally how we used to farm right? Uh -huh. Farming was, you know, subsistence. It's each household farms for itself, you know? So someone would have large acre property, but they would only use enough to feed their family. And it became, a, you know, not even a family business because it was only like the surplus that was ever sold off. It was not, it was a non-monetary thing. By the time I came back, it was one of those things that was sort of like transitioning from a, a hangover of colonization where in the region, you know, the major farms, uh, old pre-independence tea plantations, sugar plantations, coffee sort of thing, to now smallholder farmers who are, you know, growing commercially viable crops, whether this is cocoa or maize or corn as you know as our friends uh, in some parts of the world call it sweet potato yams you know it was never the idea that i grew food to sell it so i came back when that transition was happening but you you have to you have to like really respect the effort some of these other countries have put in place because for you to be able to to buy a tractor or to set up a tractor rental business on loan means that you have government financing and you can subsidize prices and then tractors are more affordable to the average person and you have insurance and things like that. That wasn't really there. Like you would have the one rich person, you know, in the village who had his tractor. And, you know, back when I was starting, irrigation was the privilege of the rich, right? So... I spent most of my money putting an irrigation system, but when it was time for planting, when the rains were coming, you couldn't get a tractor until the rich guy had finished you know, using his tractor. There was one tractor and you had from a queue. So now, you know, you know, policies and efforts have been made to you know, purchase by the government machinery okay. and to pay experts and consultants on things like, seed selection and what kind of crops they are. And that's the traditional bottleneck most people see. And for a while, you know, because of the business administration background, I went into consulting, you know, after, you know, restarting the farm with the help of my mother. My mother is one of those Africans who she can drop a seed by accident and it grows. 
So <laughs> good for her. She would tell you the name of like six different beans just by the, the the shape of the leaf. With time, you realize that we don't really. We it's much better now, but I think one of the things and it's even a common theme in the in in the company I started is access to information, right? Because as you said, there's someone who knows how to plant in this particular region, how to deal with this soil, which crops will flourish, which crops don't get attacked by pests in this area. But if back in the day, if you didn't know that person or their family directly, you were cut off from access to that information. Consulting was a thing and you know, you go up the chain and there are times I found myself the youngest person in a room, you're called to represent, you know, your district at a government meeting at like the Sheraton and Serena and you, everyone is, you know, late forties and older. And they're like, whose son are you? I'm like, no, I'm a panelist. <laughs> You're a panelist, how? Oh, what, what did you, how did you learn all these things? I'm like, I went and I did it and I lost a lot of money. Other young people not lose money, mm-hmm. you know? With that, you know, the government has a national agriculture advisory and support system that was actually well staffed, right? Like they've got people in there who knew their stuff and they never told anyone. You would drive by their office on the way to your village, right? And, they, and it's, there's a building staffed with professionals. There was no radio play. There was no newspapers. Like we didn't know that these people mm. were there. And now they're there and they're changing people's lives, you know, and it's, 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 it's so good to see the progress that's happened in the past few years in the field of agriculture. It's, you know, progress is a tricky thing because you fix a problem, you get a new problem to fix. We're now at that point where we're dealing with post-harvest loss, mm. packaging, processing, which is a sign that production yields have gone up, you know? But I'm telling you, five years ago, it was oh, it was rough. Okay, let, let me be that foreigner, you know. How can they have people around and they don't know that they have them? I know government sometimes is not reliable. We do know that. But, you know, come on, <laughs> you know, it's... It's marketing, you know, it's... Uh, and it's so weird because I think... Like, for example, in Burundi, you know, a lot of our societies, you're taught to be very humble and quiet as an individual, right? Even in your success, you're taught to be quiet. America is completely different, right? They don't, they don't even wait for you to be successful. To be, <laughs> you, can, you can brag about, in, you know, future success, impending success. I remember taking a professional course and they would teach you how to start a conversation, the point where you can negotiate for a job offer or anything within three to five minutes. I remember there was, and you see it all the time, if you watch CNN or the BBC or whatever, one of these NATO powers will come and say, oh, you know, we are so proud of the work we've done in, in this and this village, in this and this country. When you look at the balance of payments, you're like, you spent like 0.001% of the profits you made, right? From doing business with these guys. Like it's barely CSR at this point, but they show off what they're doing so well. Our governments 
have the worst PR. The only thing you ever hear out of Africa is it's a coup. Someone's done something corrupt. Really? Uh, yeah. There's a civil war. There's a famine. You never get the PR of this country has innovated this solution. I mean, Uganda, for example, was at the forefront of you know fighting Ebola and creating an Ebola vaccine and all of that. But if you Google Uganda, I bet that won't be even on page one through five. Wow. Yeah. So it's just bad PR internationally and locally because mm-hmm. I had a classmate, we went to school together. He worked at the Ministry of Agriculture. He's the one who told me where the, the local agriculture office was. Like I drive on that road. I used to drive on the road three to five times a week, right? I'll drive to the farm 5 a.m. in the morning wow. and come back 6 p.m. in the evening. I never, there were no signs. I, there was nothing on the radio. So I got frustrated and I called a friend of mine and he's like, no, 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 no. But we have an office in your area. This is the place. Let me give you a number. And now some of these guys are my friends. I mean, you know, I did consulting for their local branch. We did a project, presented it on national level. Very skilled, very happy to serve people. But the government just wasn't, you know, pushing that information out. And that's the thing. I, you know, I work now in finance and you see it all the time, this siloing of information. Everything happens in a silo. And if you're not in that silo, you don't know about it. So you need, and you know, it's a term, I don't know if you guys have it, you know, in France or Brody, but in Kampala, they, it's a joke phrase like, oh, I know a guy. What do you need? I know a guy. Because you need <laughs> to know a guy. You can't just look stuff up. That works. I mean, Burundi plus Burundi is a small, small country. So mm-hmm. we always know as one person. But as yeah, before we move into the, the, the fintech, let, tell me a bit more about the farming at the end when you have the loss, because I don't know what happened. What could be all this like packaging thing? Don't we think about, you know, I'm thinking like a foreigner again. A couple of key decisions led to, to this loss. One, the scientist in me wanted to figure this out as quick as possible. So I opted to grow okra for export because okra has a very short horizon to harvest, right? In six weeks, you're putting on your first, uh, your first fruit. I was like, okay, so that means that a season is roughly 12 to 15 weeks. So that's a short enough period of time, you know, it's five months, less than like half a year to figure out if this works or not. The perfectionist in me put half of my life savings and some money from my family and went and bought irrigation equipment and hired like a farm manager and security and plowed the land and made everything look super, like super Dutch level farming. Uh, so we started with five acres and we're supplying this exporter. And they were so finicky, like, they're like, oh no, this product. And you know that you're jumping through hoops and everything, but you're like, challenge accepted, I'll make it work. Around that time, when we started, uh, a couple of growers used the wrong pesticide for chili. And Ugandan chili was temporarily banned from the EU. Midway my harvest, fast forward, this is now four months in, the harvest is good. We've got systems working. We're doing deliveries three times a week. We're on course to be self-sustaining. 
Our salaries will no longer be coming out of pocket. Costs will be covered roughly 18 months away from recouping initial investment. But things are looking really good. The government does all these appeals. There's new standards put in place. The chili market ban is lifted and the demand for Ugandan chili because we make amazing uh, bird's eye chili and scotch bonnet grow really well in our soil over here. So the demand skyrockets. So what does the exporter do? He decides he's, not, he's going to spend all his cargo space, all his money for cargo buying chili and he dumps every other fruit and vegetable. No one eats okra in Uganda, right? I remember I went to like, you know how you have like a big open air market? There was one vendor for okra and he was willing to buy 50 kilograms per week. And we were producing between two to four tons per day. And the wind just got knocked out of me. It wasn't worth driving it from the farm to the, to the, to the city. I think I was, I was so depressed. I didn't leave the house for like, I think, three weeks. And my mother calls me. She's like, you know what? That's a lesson. So now let's grow things that people can eat in our country. You know? And that's how we started the farm up again. She put in some money. It was interesting because uh, she was a minority shareholder and she was a farm manager, but I was the owner. And it, it's Africa. You can't be your parents' boss, you know? <laughs> so a few years later, you know, we like to say she, she bought me out of the farm. <laughs> <laughs> was it like hostile takeover or like... Uh... Pretty much. Because <laughs> it's How can I put it this way? She's a better farmer than I am, hands down. Like, ah. I was really proud of, you know, statistically, like with okra, two out of every three seeds germinate. So that's like 66%. And my target was hit 60%. And I was about like 70% germination rate. And my mom is like, that's horrible. That means you wasted 30% of your seeds. When I plant something, it grows. So she's just a better farmer than I am. And she loves it. But I am obsessed with books, right? Like profit margin. And for her, this is like, she's an, a different stage in her life, clearly. She has amassed her own assets and she's comfortable. She's patient. She's like, the, the money will come when it comes. You know, I'm like, no, that's not how you run a business. So like, we'll, we'll fight all the time. Because like, it's the rainy season now, right? So we'd have like a meeting and plan out all the activities. There's this like one radio station where they give farming tips, but they're unaccountable because you don't know them. They're on the radio. And they say the hot crop this season is, and she'll just take like five acres and plant something we didn't agree on. And I'm just like, what are you doing? Uh, yeah. Okay. Going with the flow. <laughs> exactly. But she, was, but she was happy. You know, at the time I was 27 or something. You're young. Go do something else. And uh, she turned it around. Uh, so we do plantains. So we do the matoke, the sweet plantain. Oh, the sweet banana. come on. And it's doing really well. She's a much, like one of the things I learned from my mother was uh, people management. Like she's so good at motivating and understanding her employees. So it's, a, it's, it's essentially a completely different farm than when I was in charge. <laughs> With the American way of, of, way of right? saying things. Sometimes it doesn't translate, you know? Of, oh, no, you're going to have a roster and schedule. Oh. 
still like motivated by capitalism their paycheck no no <laughs> someone See, wants you to ask them how their grandkids are doing before you start working you know yeah um, <laughs> wow that's the eq that everybody needs so right did you eat today you know what i mean instead of so did you arrive at nine you're like did i have my breakfast because like <laughs> wow that's amazing yeah mom actually it's so funny you mentioned that uh, my mom inst- uh, does uh breakfast at the farm it's now company policy oh. she's like you get them to show up on time don't sh- don't tell them to show up on time just put breakfast they will come by themselves on time she, she understands <laughs> the ugandan culture she gets it she gets it yeah. <laughs> wow well i mean true if you think about it right <laughs> I'll be there on time as well. And if you're I mean, late, you know the whole thing, thing is thing. gone. It's not just a Ugand- I don't know if you saw it, but when Google <laughs> sent employees to work from home, uh-huh. they asked for pay rise because they didn't realize at the Google headquarters, all the meals are free. So now people were working from home and they had to like buy My and cook food. their <laughs> So it's a big motivator. <laughs> That's a good one. Now I have to cook. Oh man. Oh my goodness. That is so true though. Kudos to your mom. And then, <laughs> but to you, because at some point you started it and f- farming is the future, one of the futures of Africa. But one of the things that are going up and being so tech savvy. And as you said, we're like, I was, I'm an eight, late eighties. So I don't know which I consider myself eighties person or nineties, eighties, because it sounds more mature. I was born in right. 88, so let's just keep that in perspective. 88 kids, you know. <laughs> but my youth, as you said, there's something about the millennial time where everything was tech. I remember studying, having like computer science um, oh, classes during the school breaks or whatever, holidays, because I can't say summer in Burundi. All these things and having a computer and going to my dad's you know, office and seeing things. I'm like, what? Windows 2000? Now... <laughs> Now, now we're moving into people are going to Mars, but then there are things happening in Africa. Fintech, edtech, agritech, I don't know, insurtech. You put everything plus tech. I hope right? it's not a bubble, people. I hope it's not a bubble because I don't need the, uh, the bubble, the internet bubble. But there's something really great happening. Tell us what you see and why you started your company. Well, what I see is really simple. If you look at financial markets globally, there's going to be a huge redirection of capital to Africa. One, because most of the other markets have matured. There's not a lot of innovation or accelerated growth that can happen. Two, there's a really high demand, which means higher profit margins on debt and things like that. And then just the fact that you know, we're a young population, most of the continent is below the age of 38. I'm trying to stick myself in there, 35. <laughs> most of us, 35. <laughs> trying to be safe for a few more years, but yeah, most of the continent, 35. Smartphones and mobile internet proliferation is growing year and year, becoming a connected market. And yet still Africa is the resource basket of the world. Uh, so many of the minerals that are used in today's devices, you know, from copper, lithium, aluminium, cobalt, nickel, they're mined in Africa. 
Africa has such an untapped potential to produce food. You know, it's, it's, it's funny and impressive. I'll give them that, it is impressive, that the best farming country by square mile is the Netherlands. Their, their cities covered in greenhouses and with machines that determine when to water plants and everything. If that, you know, the, people come and cry. I've met a consultant for the government. He came from Israel and he cried. He said, if we had this in Israel, we could feed the world, you know? So Africa is the future. It's the, they call it like, you know, Elon is all about space, but on the planet, Africa is the next frontier. Mm. And with all of that, with development, with innovation, there's going to be a need for finance. That's the, that's the moment when I looked at it, because I, I, I did a lot of projects and finance was the stumbling block. Finance is still quite expensive in Africa. Uh, across the board, it's one of the most expensive places to take a loan. It is the most expensive destination for remittances. It is the market with the lowest participation per capita in the capital markets by a private citizen, which is the space I'm in. There's just, you can't see the ceiling. The possibilities are endless right now. So what we're trying to do with my company, Utilist Ventures, is we built a platform, a marketplace called Level. And we tested it out. We just launched 15, 15 days ago. It was a soft launch because we haven't yet you know, buffed up our marketing budget. But what we're trying to do is create access, simple, quick, dependable access to investments on the continent. For people on the continent, people in the diaspora, and for investors looking to get at emerging markets. Because, I mean, US bonds are paying. Last time I checked, I stopped checking. It got boring. It was always hovering around 1% or less. Yeah. Uh, Germany is so flushed with cash and surpluses that, you know, they've gone negative, right? Like, we don't need your money. We're going to charge you to keep your money. That's how safe your money is. A good problem to have, man. Here in Uganda, for instance, 10% 10% annualized return on investment in you know, debt securities or government paper. It's the norm. The other day I saw guys on LinkedIn and my LinkedIn is so weird. It's part of it. The algorithm still thinks I'm in the States. I still get job offers from the States. Oh, okay. <laughs> so I knew maybe, maybe that's on me. Maybe I need to update that better. But these guys were arguing about how oh, it would be amazing to get 5% you know, because this guy did a brilliant example teaching his daughter about compound interest and all his finance buddies were like, I wish we could, and I'm in, you know, I'm in the comment section. I'm like, should I tell them? Should I tell them they can get, (laughs) you know, (laughs) because if, and a lot of people don't know that, like one of the reasons this came up, it was a confluence of, of demands from different people in my life and personal and also professional. So uh, one really big niche that we want to serve are Africans in the diaspora. Because, I mean, you know what happens when an African gets a job in the diaspora. They work their ass off. They, they volunteer to do overtime, to come in on weekends. They're trying to get that money. <laughs> <laughs> but a lot of times people send money back home to friends and relatives to invest and it gets squandered. A few years ago, I remember there was you know, this senior government technocrat who acts as the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, and they were trying to deal with this problem because he had done so much work to build the diaspora in Uganda. But 
there were all these horror stories of I've sent back the equivalent of 40,000 US dollars. And, you know, my brother said he was doing commercial chicken farming and we had like 20,000 chickens. And I came home and there are no chickens. There isn't even a chicken coop, right? They stole my money. You know? oh, yeah. And you can imagine how long it took him to save that money, you know? So we wanted to create direct solutions such that you could buy a government bond, you could buy stocks in a local Ugandan company, like you know the Ugandan branch of British American Tobacco or the power companies. They pay dividends. Yeah. It's a safe store of your money and you earn a profit on it. There was no way to do that. You know, the government still does roadshows where they send banks out and they try and queue up a local account. And then you have to fax or mail paperwork. And then, you know, they're open for you on the couch. And it's, it's, you're like, guys, can, can, I, can I click on a screen somewhere? Yeah. We wanted to build a solution for them. But as I started that journey and I was talking to a lot of my friends, our generation is the generation, you know, that's supposed to bring the middle class to Africa. But we're also the generation that's being, you know, killed by consumerism through things like Snapchat and Instagram and Amazon. It was a weird thing that the higher the earning power, the less likely they were to save and invest, which is the middle income trap that you see in the US. Everyone's on credit because you know, they have a job and they'll pay, pay it off later. So we said, okay, why don't you invest? They're like, where? I was like, oh, buy a government bond or invest in a unit trust. They're like, what does that mean? How do I do that? Where are the offices? And that's when I realized that finance lucrative, formal, like there's a lot of entrepreneurship. Uganda is the most entrepreneurial country in the world, but lucrative, formal financial markets seem to exist in a black box where people who are not part of the financial ecosystem, you don't work for a big insurance company, you don't work for a big bank, you don't know about some of these services. Commercial banks here, they're a little stuck up. They're like, eh, what's the, what's the cost of acquisition? What's the lifetime value of this person? That's because they have to pay you know, one relationship manager for like every 20 people, so profit man. I'm like, no, I'll do it digital. We're in 2020, you know, fintech. Making it digital and providing transparent and easy access to the markets. We are backing on the fact that more Ugandans will participate in their local markets and earn very attractive return on investment, which will develop the capital markets. The US hasn't had to really do any, how can I put it, uncomfortable borrowing for years now because their local markets are so strong, they can do internal debt, you know? So by building East Africa, because I look at East Africa, the USA, Canada, their whole continent, they go from ocean to ocean. So Uganda is a very small market by comparison. Mm. So I like to look at East Africa as a whole. And if you had a thriving financial market where you know, there was trust in the system, there was transparency, it was easy to use, you don't have to run around town with paperwork and copies of your passport photo, which is a thing, <laughs> it's ridiculous. So the whole idea was remove as many hurdles as it is for people to invest and provide them with the amount of information that a reasonable person would need to decide whether or not to make an investment. And that's what we're doing with Level. We want you to be able to, our target is eight minutes. We are currently around 10, 11 minutes. So you can sign up 
you, you get onboarded, you do the know your customer compliance, that's, you know, photo documentation, ETC, and then get to the investment page, place an investment and get a confirmation roughly within 10, 11 minutes. So that's where we are today. We are expanding for, so we did native first. So the average Ugandan with a smartphone and mobile internet can do that in about 10, 11 minutes. By end of next month, we want to expand to East Africa and diaspora so that, for instance, French, the French system has a variety of ID documents, yep. which are not the same as the Ugandan. So that's a kind of a trick, like training your system to be able to say, okay, this is a real French passport. This is a fake French passport. But then we want to be able to do that because these are the people with the greatest need, right? You're in a country where... Unlike Uganda, you can't just go rent a stall and do a small shop, you know, without <laughs> filling in tons of paperwork and local licenses. You know, you don't get like a three months head start out there. And depending on your, your status, you may not even be allowed to do some of these things. We want to be able to service our community such that we, like for instance, we have international card payment processing already set up and running. And we're doing tests with users in the UK, you know? So people, people have begun investing from the UK. They can't believe it. They're like, oh my That's God. That's crazy. Let, let me tell you this, because the, the, the fact that you can talk about, we can talk about the treasury bonds and government bonds. And it sounds so foreign to me because I think the only time that I heard about it was, so my dad used to manage a bank. So I could say, I could hear from him. And then the rest will be from, because I've never heard it from like Burundian news. You know what I mean? They could be like, we have this, that much debt and we have this, you know, IMF gave us this amount of money, blah, 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 blah. And the only time I heard about this was either on CNN when we hear it from, you know, US, EU, blah, blah, blah. And then afterwards at school that I realized like, do Burundians, do Ugandans, do Rwandis understand what 10%? Because I'm pretty sure in Burundi it's 18. I think at some point it reached 18 I was like, you gotta be kidding me. There's something yeah. wrong with the system <laughs> that I'm pretty sure I'm lost. Cause I was going, I went back to Burundi for an internship and I was reading something on my books and in Burundi was quite contrary. And I was like, how are we still managing this country? I don't know. <laughs> and, but somehow if you had the means, you'd be like 18, like 10%. Should I, should I tell you something hilarious? Uganda is the home of the deal economy. Everyone has a deal they're chasing, something they're trying to flip. These are the things that, you know, make so much news, right? Like, oh, this guy, he went and, and I hate like 80%. There's some really good books that have come out from some really good, no-nonsense entrepreneurs who build mm -hmm. wealth over time. But then there's like this new money that shows up and it's like, no, I bought this plot of land and in like six months, the neighborhood went crazy. So I flipped it, I made 400%. I'm like, okay, that's a bit of an exaggeration because unless someone is hiding illegal money, no one would pay 100% on top of face value for anything in the world, right? <laughs> but you have all these young people, right? Who think profit margins of 50, 100, 200% are a thing. And because of that, you know, only someone about you or is really interested in what you're doing will give you the the rough treatment with your idea right so 
everyone goes into their own business, right? And there's a lot of copycat syndrome. So and so became a millionaire selling, you know, ladies' weaves, right? So I'm going to go to China and bring a container. Uh, You and a thousand other people, (laughs) you know, you haven't learned anything about distribution or anything, but you want to try that because the profit margin is over 100%. So when you tell them, but you know, you could make 10% per year risk-free, like this is the government. And like I I tell people, uh, Uganda, Bank of Uganda has done a really good job. Uh, They're one of the most trustworthy banks in the region. They haven't defaulted uh, as much as most of the other banks in Africa. So it's it's a very safe investment, relatively Mm -hmm. speaking. You know, it's not like the Fed, right? Which would just print more dollars and everyone accepts. Mm -hmm. But it's a relatively safe investment. This is a passive investment. You don't have to wake up at the crack of dawn and get in a taxi to go to office. It's just your money will grow. And with compounding, this is what happens. And they're like, okay, I don't know. There's a large amount of investor and retail sensitization and education that needs to happen. Because there's a lot of people who just don't know that this is a thing because it sounds very sophisticated. It sounds like things governments do with other governments. So how do I as an individual, you know, go and buy a government bond? But with technology, these things become really simple. I mean, a bunch of nobodies with very funny usernames on the Wall Street's Bet Reddit, you know, Reddit's page used Robinhood to fight <laughs> Wall Street. And technically one, you know? So the power of the individual can be multiplied by technology. I was at a, a dinner party with some bankers and they said, but these people you're targeting, they can't even give you a thousand dollars. I said, okay, what if they gave me 10? If a million people give you $10, that's $10 million. That's not small money. Hmm. The current minimum on our site is I think $30, right? Just oh, because okay. those are the denominate, like the rough equivalency mm. of what the, the central bank uses and everything. It's 100,000 Uganda shillings. A million people putting $30 away every month for a year. Huh. That's 360 million. That's infrastructure bond. Like that's what African Development Bank is doing to build, you know, the cross-continental highway and things <laughs> like that. So <laughs> the capacity is something that I feel people undermine retail capacity and undermine the collective power of the individual. Back in the day when you ne- needed to hire a salesperson to convince every single user, you couldn't hire enough salespeople to sell to a million people. That would be like 200,000 salespeople, right? <laughs> it doesn't make sense. But with technology, you have this level of scale that's incredible. I mean, you, your family and Brody, anyone listening to this podcast, for where they are, they can just type level.utilis anywhere in the world and be on the site. Most of the processes are self-service. You don't need to call me up. You can wake up at 5 a.m. having had a dream about being a millionaire and decide to invest. I don't need to wait for that. You know? So that's, if, if you're curious, we're building, we're building a repository of information, you know, mm. not just frequently asked questions, but how to guide so that if you're curious, just come to the site and learn what is a bond, right? Yeah. I'm lending money to the government, but the government, the government is so big. How can I, a small person, lend them money? You know? 
I, I really hope because I was thinking with uh, with a friend a while ago, and I was saying like there's so many things we should learn at school, but somehow we didn't. And number one would be our history, our own history. I'm just saying instead of learning friends in Belgium, uh, I just keep that aside. And second will be like how to manage finances when you start junior high or something like that. You know, I don't know how you guys say like when you're 13, 14. Those seasons where you're like learning how to manage a budget or to buy your clothes, your shoes. And and I feel like talking about compound interests at a young age. I mean, at some point you're like, come on. You know what I mean? Like, should we go to schools? Are are you guys going to schools and be like, knock, knock, uh, give me 10 minutes. Because I'm pretty sure in 30 minutes I'll be able to change your life. One of my friends, actually, uh, she's called Aisha. She works with iProfile. They're doing uh, savings education for children, child financial literacy, oh. because there's a whole theory that it's difficult to change an adult, mm-hmm. right? So build the habit when they're young. These kids will start saving cents, like one cent, five cents a day, right? A week. And at the end of the year, some of them have made like a thousand dollars and they can't believe it. And if you see like the look on their faces, their minds are forever changed because they realize that a little saved consistently goes a long way. That child in 20 years, is going to be way ahead of most of our peers yeah. because they are battling with that concept now. I remember going, I remember like, I think it was like my second year at university in the U.S., and I realized my classmates didn't study about the Canadian prairies because it was optional. You could opt out of, you know, advanced geography. I didn't have a choice and I live in Uganda. So our education system, because I remember that they taught us commerce, you know, in, in, in St. Mary's. And uh, commerce, commerce is what we call it over here. British would say commerce. Uh, <laughs> but I don't remember taxes being anything but a math equation it was like, okay, if you have a 15% tax, it's 15 over 100 times this. You don't realize what is a tax, what attracts taxes, how can you pay them, how are they deferred? No, it's just, did you attend math? Okay, so do this. I remember filing taxes for the first time back home, and it was an Excel spreadsheet that had 11 sheets, like not just sections. But no. Like, it's so bad. I remember you were laughing, Windows 2000. It's so bad. Like this must have been like Windows Vista because <laughs> there was no quick help. You couldn't link it to Chrome to get solutions. No, you had to, you know? And I swear to God, part of it this was like, this is perpetrated by like the, the public accountants mafia. Like, oh, this is so complicated. You don't have to pay us to do this for you. A lot of businesses get wiped out by fines because they don't pay their taxes. But this is because the person starting a business probably dropped out of school because they couldn't afford to return and started their business. Mm. And they've never had, you know, training. Mm. So it's a thing like edutech, you know, is out there somewhere. And reg tech, regulatory tech is out. They need to come and have this big (laughs) access, much simpler. And with the African, you know, continental free trade area thing, we will need uniformity, right? Because you can get a seizure trying to pay different taxes across the continent. You know? It's one of those things where 
financial literacy is going to be such a key enabler of development in the country, not just from the services that you know, people like me and other innovators are going to provide, also policy. If you don't understand that government debt is your debt, then you don't care that your government keeps borrowing billions yeah. of dollars and doesn't finish projects on time. You don't care that taxes have been levied on imports because you don't work in that particular sector of the economy, but it comes back to you later on. Mm -hmm. So generally, there's going to have to be a push for everyone in the economy. First of all, everyone to participate in the economy. That's like with a lot of farmers, you know, you say, Burundi is maybe 95% farmers, but this is subsistence farmers. They don't pay taxes, right? Not directly anyway, mm -hmm. maybe on the cost of seeds and things, but not directly. But most quote unquote developed nations, farming is between seven and 3% of the population because they've gone commercial, mass production. But how do you go mass production if you cannot attract investment, if you cannot keep your books, if your government puts policies that scare you know foreign direct investment in your sector so the only way you can know these things happen is if you choose to participate in the economy and you have to educate yourself and it's ironic we live in a world with so much free education i mean the khan academy everyone has a podcast on a topic they're passionate about but nobody gets more views than instagram or youtube you know? actually youtube does have a lot of educational content but if more people just in Kampala, just in my city, spent time learning about finances, at what stage Kim and, Kan Kim and Kanye's divorce is at? Although you have to say, I think that couple can teach me, can teach a lot of us how to manage, how to build sponsorships or whatever, how to build yeah. a fortune. They do know how to do that, but they're not giving the secrets away. Kanye is a billionaire <laughs> because he sells clothes that look like trash. That man is a genius. Kim took what was essentially a sin, a taboo in Africa, <laughs> and turned that into a multi-million dollar fortune. We take notes? No, we give them likes. That's what we do. We give them likes and we come back the next day. So, that is so diplomatic. It is, I'm going to use this. How, how would you explain that to a person who is in Africa? Like, why is she famous? You're like, hmm. anyone can Google, why is Kim <laughs> It, it, it will show up. They'll be like, oh, it's not just reality TV. Who is Ray J? <laughs> <laughs> oh, good Lord. Keep you. Yeah, I hope you stay married because, well, I'm thinking about for the kids, but uh, <laughs> good for you. But the teachers, they teach people how to be themselves. I don't know, but it is true. When you spend... Let's start. But how are you going to explain this to a 15-year-old person? Let, let's put it in perspective. In Africa, we do have a problem with our currencies that changes, you know, every other day. True. True. The, I mean, even with like investing, when we talk to large investors who are offshore, three common things they bring up, political risk. It's, it's one of those tragic cliches that is just, it's African South America flavor. Like... <laughs> Right? Like, republics. What a bag of Pringles, political risk. We have all the maps and the flags on them. Political risk, inflation, and currency risk, right? The thing is, if you're a, if you're a citizen, 
of the country, right? You kind of don't have a choice to worry about currency risk so long as you're doing business in that country in legal tender. Like it's great, if it happens, it's going to happen to you. Same thing, double down with inflation, right? So you need to make sure your investments at the very least provide a return greater than inflation and won't be wiped out by currency risk. So that's where you get a basic level of financial literacy. Well, that's more moderate to advanced financial literacy, but a basic level of financial advisory. All of these, you said, how do you talk to a 15-year-old about this? And you made me think about one problem. And everyone who hears this podcast, please, as Africans in our families, can we start being more honest and more transparent about money? Can we talk about money? Because foreigners here, whether they're Asian, from whichever part of Asia, would be Chinese, Japanese, Indian, uh, whether they're from the Middle East, from Europe, they have transparent conversations about money with their children from a young age. They're not doing it where they come from. Even when they move here, they keep these conversations going. So kids grow up knowing money is a thing and it's not the be all and end all of life, but it's a big component of life. And, you know, if you don't save and you spend recklessly, you don't have any money. If you don't put your money to work for you, it won't grow. You know, businesses need investment. They need time to be managed. Kids shadow their parents at work. They understand these things. Unfortunately, it's been a big theme in my country in the past several years that someone very successful will pass away and there's just turmoil social and financial turmoil like assets are being stolen by workers and colleagues and business partners the family doesn't know all the investments where they're located There was no plan. Sometimes there's no will. And it's a cultural thing because, you know, we grew up with a lot of taboos. You know, the French, you call it a faux pas, like talking about money and, 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 and debt can be gauche, right? Yeah, there you go. <laughs> French it up. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, it's a very important thing in that if your kids, I had a savings box as a kid and I saved everything, like tooth fairy money. You know, saying that now makes me realize that I'm a privileged African because I thought... I was going to say, these are the stories you heard on whatever, <laughs> MTV, like... MTV. No, but you know, it wasn't like a tooth fairy. <laughs> like, my, like you know, in our culture, it's a rat, right? A rat takes you, right? <laughs> tooth fairy is for the, for the generation, for the culture, but it's a rat, you know, so the rat took a tooth. And I remember I had a silver tooth. When the rat took the silver tooth and gave me the same amount of money as other tooth, I put the money back and my mom asked me why. I was like, that tooth had silver on it. It can't be the same price. It has to cost more. Right? <laughs> and my mom was like, she was shocked because it's her money, right? This is an opportunity to teach him the value of things. She's like, okay, yeah, you're right. So the next day I came back and the money was doubled, you know? And so it saved the money, but like there weren't those many bank accounts and none of them took children's accounts. Someone came home and stole my savings box. <laughs> of course they did. I'm pretty sure it's an adult who knew about your savings. Yeah. Oh, it, was, it, was, it was a dude who used to work for my Oh, mom. no. Uh, I was so mad. Like, I didn't save the whole next year. Like, I, like, I was like, no, 
can't save your money, you're safe. I was nine years old experiencing risk, right? Like actual risk. <laughs> and then they're like, okay, no, you know, we'll get you a bank account. The bank is safe. Uh, you know, at nine, eight, nine, ten years old, I was learning about savings and risk and things like that without being sat down to, told, to be told these things, right? That's why I think finance doesn't scare me. But I have friends who are like, I try and tell them to like sign up and what options are available. Like, can I just give you my money and you deal with it? Because I want to think about it. Because, you know, thinking about money and numbers, it's just, it's messy, they're uncomfortable. We have to get comfortable with it. That's, it's one of the key steps of moving forward, you know? Ray Dalio. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Ray Dalio, uh, the founder of Bridgewater, he writes a book called, he wrote a book called Principles. And in Principles, Principles you need to be comfortable facing your reality and accepting your reality. And it's only when you're comfortable with the reality that you can deal with the problems and move forward in life. If you have no money today, it's okay. Do you plan to have money in the future? Right? How do we get there? Right now, that involves a lot of discussions and literacy. Also voicing things, you know, that make people feel like they're not alone. Because 10-year-old me didn't know what a government bond was. <laughs> yeah. Right? It's so true. Um, 20-year-old me knew what it was and thought it was beyond, you know, my participation. I thought it was a thing banks and governments did. 28-year-old me could not calculate yield to maturity. So you go on improving, like, okay, now I know. And then the guy at the bank says, yeah, you'll get 12%. I'm like, okay. I did know that that's subject to like, what they call it. I think in Europe, they would call it capital gains tax. In Uganda, it's withholding tax. Now I know all these things because I put in the time, I'm trying to make it easier for people to know these things, to see the opportunities and to be less frightened by this monster machine that is finance and investing Mm. and realize that you don't need to be a billionaire to start investing, you know? Warren Buffett of today didn't didn't start out with a hundred billion dollars, you know? Time is the most crucial thing in investing. The sooner you start, the greater your rewards will be with time. But mm-hmm. people don't say, people who know about investing, they're like, ah, one of my, one of my cousins, I'm sorry, I went, ah, ah, ah it's such a Ugandan thing. <laughs> it's such an African thing. <laughs> <laughs> one of my cousins saved, uh, he was working as a, as a bagger at a prominent grocery chain. And he saved about $1,000 in tips. So he asked this you know, successful businessman of town, what can I do with my $1,000? I mean, this is a kid working his first summer job just before going to university. $1,000 is more money than he's ever had, you know? I mean, it's a lot, yeah. This guy says, yeah, look at my watch. He's like, this watch cost me $8,000. Take your $1,000 and eat it. There's nothing I could do with 1000 and you're supposed to, you've succeeded. You're supposed to be a role model in society and you're oh, shooting people. come on. I'm here to tell people that for, depending, for about $30, right? Mm. You can get it, you can start investing in high-yield government bonds today. For about 50, no, for about 20 to $15, you can buy stocks today. There's this one pet peeve of mine. 
And I was, I was going to try and let it go, but all these fintechs, right? The thing that all these fintechs are doing right now with selling American shares, right? American stocks on their platforms, very good business model for the fintech. And you could even say it's ethical because they get you your proportionate share of the company, but it doesn't provide or create value for most users. One reason is 2020 was an abnormal year for the US markets, right? The markets themselves grew by more than 30%, if I'm not wrong. Tesla grew by over 700% because everyone bet against the mad scientist and he won. It was like, said money there, but the market's overcapitalized There's, and they're cyclical. So if you come in and many people will tell you, you can't time the market. So if you come in thinking you can time the market as a retail investor in Uganda, and you think you know more about what's happening at Apple than the Bill Ackermans of the world, you're going to lose, <laughs> right? Now the, the, the FinTech makes money because it charges you a fee. It may charge you a, a fee in face value, they'll charge a transaction fee, or they'll get a cut of the commission on the sale of the stock. They're not, they're not a charity, they're making money you will end up owning a share of a company and you haven't been advised that stock ownership is a long-term game, yeah. right? Over time, all the markets go up. So they'll have a bad quarters report, like maybe Apple has lost its magic and the iPhone 13 won't sell as expected. So the price will go down for about a couple of weeks yeah. and you'll panic and you'll sell at a loss and decide to buy General Motors or something. And each time you do a transaction, they make money, but you lose. And that's the thing. For these hedge funds that make billions of dollars a year, they make it because they won playing against you who doesn't have a team of analysts and things. And they'll take your $5 and, someone's, and they'll get together be a billion. I, it, it really hurts me that people are not speaking up against this because it's, it's a model where the average user loses. Like the average, the majority, not even the average, the majority of people who claim to be stock traders in their you know, spare time, it's not a spare time gig. There's a reason why they pay people hundreds of thousands of dollars. Absolutely. They lose money, but the fintechs that enable them make profits. Second, uh, I'll give the example of Nigeria. Mm -hmm. It causes two negative things. It causes capital flight, which is why Nigeria suspended a bunch of apps that were selling US securities. Because yeah, I don't know, I don't, I don't live in Nigeria and I don't study that market a lot, but safe to say people lost faith in the government and the local securities market. So they were sending all their money to like the NYSC and the NASDAQ yeah. and what through these apps. It's messed up that Nigeria loses a, a social media battle with Twitter and then the central bank loses investment to Facebook. Nigeria <laughs> is living a best life right now. <laughs> right? Best, they are collecting yeah. the bills right now. But that causes capital flight, which affects you know, all sorts of things like currency pricing against the dollar, etc., etc., which is a monetary policy nightmare. But then it's really difficult to justify investing in a developed market as opposed to an emerging market if your only motivation is profit maximization, because the, the market will do maybe nine on average, 9%, 8%, the US market. 
the East African market is going to about 11%. And that's post-COVID, you know? As things get better, you'll be looking possibly towards 13%. And that's a diversified portfolio. You could be really focused and get 14.8%. Yeah. Why, why are people sending money abroad in a game they don't fully understand, that they're yeah. not fully committed to participate in, to make less money? I'm going to speak for me, for example, for, because I cover tech on African Tech Roundup. And for someone who studied uh, financial markets and who I think if I were 16 and I had like a nap, like a, not Robin Hood, because no, I do use a Revolut. And mm-hmm. I, honestly, I'm not advising to get a, a lot of them because their service, customer service really sucks. And I'm speaking this out loud, honestly. But if I had had the opportunity to buy a Nike stock, because I love sports, I'm pretty sure I understand how clothes are made, how sponsorships, you know, things like that. I personally, I understand when you say for the short, you know, stock market, is, it's a study. It's like people who watch MasterChef on TV and they woke up and they're like, I'm a chef. You're like, no, 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 <laughs> maybe a cook, but don't put the chef on, you know, Chef Alexandre. It's like, no, no, it's like, and I feel like, yes, there are some people who are profiting from that. When you say stock markets or government bonds, it is something that is so foreign. It's like a surgeon speaking about, you know, the brain. You're like, no, 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 no. You know what I mean? Like, no, just sit down and let me explain that it's about value. And if you don't understand Johnson & Johnson, for example, don't invest, don't invest in Johnson. Yes. Take oh something goodness. that you, you kind of understand. You need to say this more often. Warren Buffett says, knowing the price is not investing. He, he made it a rule that at least one day a week, he has to experience a product in every company he owns. He will drink a Coca-Cola, he'll go to McDonald's, he'll go to Dairy Queen, because he wants to feel the product. Like you said, Nike, because you have a relationship with Nike. You believe in, Big you, you, you're a consumer, like you're part of the sales. If a day came and you weren't interested in buying Nike anymore because you think they're not as good as Under Armour, how does this affect my portfolio? Should I sell Nike? Are other people unhappy with Nike? Right? (laughs) But you have tons, literally tons, right? Thousands of Africans, right? Buying Tesla because last year I did 700. You don't have it. Why? You've never driven a Tesla. You follow Elon. You follow Elon on Twitter. So you think you're in his head, right? <laughs> right? Don't you drive, drive a Tesla. Tesla. That's a Why good one. Cola? You know, one day you drink a Coke, it tastes funny. You buy Pepsi. Like, value based yeah. investing. Like, buy things you understand yeah. and buy them for the long run. And I think, mm-hmm. honestly, if every single app, that was doing this was educating people, I would be for it. Because my goal is mm. to have as financially sound as possible, especially Africans. Because the richer we are, the easier it is for us to solve our own problems because we understand them. The problem is there's this thing of, ooh, now you can trade American stocks. You haven't even traded Nigerian stocks. Like, like <laughs> you haven't even traded Pokemon cards. Like what, what kind of, tra- you, you can't trade maize. The, top, the app is called FX Expert. You are not an expert, right? Like, calm down, right? You got lucky the first couple of times. Calm down. Their messaging and their marketing kind of sets up users for a pitfall. That's, that's the only problem I have yeah. with it. Like, 
if you provide people an opportunity, but you need to make sure you're not giving them a rope to hang themselves, you know? Yeah, that's true. And most of them, they're using high uh, frequency trading, which is, you know, it's not the most sound thing. But anyway, let's just say now, let's just say for me, for example, I'm in France. I set up a company in either in Kigali or in Mauritius to use your, because I know a thing or two about taxis, my friend. So... <laughs> Sorry, it came naturally. Mm-hmm. And I want to use your, your app platform. Let's just say I have 10,000. And do I have to buy only Kenyan shillings? No, uh, Ugandan shillings. How, how does it start? Like, let's just say everything is set up. I go online. I do the whole thing in 10 minutes. And then. So, yeah, basically what we're trying to do is you'll be able to sign up in, and get onboarded within 10 minutes with uh, depending on the, the method you pay because Visa does automatic currency conversion. But if you're doing a sum over 3000, you know, most cards wouldn't allow you to do a single transaction over $3,000. So <clears throat> then we'd set it up so you could do a wire transfer and would work with the banks to book you the best rate we do have currency services built into the into our platform, into our marketplace, such that you can pay in and you can cash out in your preferred uh, fiat, right? Mm-hmm. I foresee that becoming a little bit tricky as we expand and we're trying to negotiate with a couple of banks to help us, like regional banks, because everyone's willing to take a euro or a pound or a dollar or a yen. And, but then you're going to have so-and-so purchasing from... Malawi and Zimbabwe and, you know, Guinea-Bissau. You need to have a bank that has like interbank services that can say, okay, that actually knows the currency in Guinea-Bissau. Like I know Malawi uses the Kwacha because it's in East Africa. Guinea-Bissau is all the way over there. I don't know what they use. It would just be like, I don't want to send someone to a Forex bureau. (laughs) Like that's an extra step. And every extra step, you lose customers, right? Mm. So ideally, now what happens is you'd sign up, you'd place your investment and we'd create a dashboard for you where you can execute instructions. Let's say you want to cash out part of your position, you want to see how it's performing, you want to request additional information, that sort of service would would generally sit in one place. As we grow, we are trying to do sort of concierge services for like our bigger clients. $10,000, it's, it's, it's not loose change, but when someone is investing over, you know, $200,000, for example, they want to be really sure about the FX rate because that's, that can eat into their margin. They want to know about taxes, like certain securities, for instance, if you're an international investor, there are securities that come with tax services built in such that you'd only You'd, you'd get a price quoted net of tax. So your return on the bond will do the yield calculation for you. And you'd know that for the first three years, you might earn a higher coupon return, but in your final year, it would be lower cause of tax, things like that. That way you can, you're, you're doing relatively simple math. If you're investing for Mauritius or wherever, you're going to pay wire transfer fees. <laughs> and that's about it. Wire transfer fees and exchange rate. So if the dollar has a really good month on the day you're buying in, you're at an advantage. <laughs> right? 
And then we can work to try and get you a really good rate on the day you're cashing out. Uganda has an open market policy. So essentially, you know, if, 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 if it's not like North Korea or I'm not sure which one of the stands is out of popularity right now, it's always a something stand. Oh. I will go with Afghanistan, but I'm just saying. Right? I mean, Pakistan, Afghanistan, something that's been blacklisted by like, you know, the IMF and the World Bank. And you're not, you know, a convicted money launderer, child trafficker, arms dealer. If you're someone who people would generally do business with, you can bring in your money night or day and you can take it, you know, uh, mm. certain Economies, South Africa, especially, is a big one. Rwanda, I think, as well, they have very stringent capital controls that control the movement of money in and out. We're as close to a revolving door as you can be while still being financially sound. So you can bring in your money today. Today is Thursday. Mm-hmm. You can decide to take it out Monday. I mean, you could decide to take it out Friday, but it's the weekend, so banks don't you know, work. So you probably get your money Monday. Mm. It's one of the reasons why... I did move to Lagos or to Nairobi or to Cairo to try and be part of the bigger startup ecosystem there is because we actually have a very progressive financial policy here in Uganda. That's great. And how about raising funds? Because obviously we cannot talk about a technology, a company. Uh, This will be the last question, obviously. But how did you get, how did you raise funds? Did you take it from your piggy bank? Did you ask friends and family? Or did you run to the, all these VCs that are flooding the market, the African market with money? Bootstrapped. I bootstrapped for over a year, mm-hmm. about a year and a half. Uh, we built our first prototype on the Ethereum blockchain. A lot of lessons were learned there. For example, most East Africans don't use Ethereum. So that was, that was they, not... Oh, they use Bitcoin. East Africans don't use crypto. <laughs> and of those who use crypto, a lot use Bitcoin. But uh, yeah, try explaining to your granddad or your auntie what Ethereum is. <laughs> who, yeah. Who, who owns it? Mm. Can I get it at the ATM? No, it was. So we, it, the prototype was well received, but only about. of our participation was from East Africa. Everything else was foreign. So then COVID came. We launched just before the market crash. Ethereum, I can't remember what Ethereum went to. I reckon it, man. Man. Bitcoin went to 3,000. That's what I remember. Because when Bitcoin hit 3,000, all our backers pulled out. And then countries went into lockdown. So we had time to hit the drawing board and redesign. And then we built a platform that's technology agnostic. On our marketplace, the currency of transaction is determined by the investment. So if you're investing in Uganda-denominated bonds, you will have to convert either through us or on your end or some other processor to Uganda shillings. If you're investing in a Kenyan security to be in Kenya shillings, in a Randy security to be Randy's francs, so that we're not, you know, opening ourselves up to that same sort of risk of being pegged to any one currency, crypto or or fiat or anything of that kind. That was a painful loss to take. That was a large chunk of my savings. Managed to bootstrap, raised a 
uh, friends and families around through convertible security to do the MVP. And now we are currently looking for angel investors because we are pre-seed. We haven't really taken any external money. Not that there is a bunch of external money around in Uganda. It seems not to cross the Kenyan border. I was like, move to Nairobi. <laughs> or, or if I want to be, take a, a white co-founder. That is true. I mean, yeah. I mean you, you, you work in this tech and you do journalism in this, in, in this space. So you know how it was almost you know, causing riots, I think in 2018, 2019 in Nairobi, that 90, what was it, 92%, 90% of all fintechs that got funding that year had a white co-founder. It's crazy. Right? Well, uh, impact investing, because a lot of the VCs that are actually in Africa came to be impact funds, and it's kind of like an old boys club, right? Like, oh, I know I, I'm investing in you because your white co-founder went to the same school I went to, or his dad is a friend of my dad or something. It wasn't really on the merits of you solely. So it was, it was, it was tough. Yeah, so there's, Uganda really needs venture capital. Mm. It needs an actual angel investors. And to top it all off, it also needs to have investor education, right? Because the leading investment in this country is real estate. So try to convince someone who owns like four apartment buildings and three warehouses to invest in software is a very different. <laughs> yeah. So like, where is it? It's on your phone. No, but like, where is the computer? It's on. It's in the cloud. Which cloud? Amazon. Where is Amazon? In, <laughs> in somewhere. Right? It's in, wow. The actual box is like in the Northeast USA. Can we go see it? You're not allowed to see it. You don't work for the cup. So you're giving, I'm giving you money for what? Right? For these pictures on the screen. I'm like, no, it doesn't. You know, so it's, wow. it's, it's, it's a very, it's, 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 a, it's a tough hill to scale. And that's not to say that there aren't high net worth individuals in the market, they are, but someone who owns five miles of coffee wakes up every day and he looks at his five yeah. miles of coffee. Yeah. To tell him that you're going to pay a very competitive salary to get really good web developers, right? It's like, what do they do? They code, what is that? It sits on the computer and makes things happen. Like, no, for that kind of money, I can hire a hundred casual laborers mm. to go and make so many. You know, it's the, the translation is a thing. And with the corporate sector, you have the two, cap, the two common problems is cannibalism and cost. There's really no genuine funding mechanism for startups in Uganda, right? Mm. <clears throat> Someone will tell you they've started a fund for startups and the company must have been in business for at least two years and made like $20,000 profit. I'm like, that's not a startup. That's a small business. And that's, yeah, <laughs> proper. <laughs> so the whole donor mentality SMEs is with the framework people are working in and they don't understand how startups work, right? I think 2019 was Tesla's full year of profit, first full year of profit. You could never do that in Uganda. Like you haven't made a profit <laughs> months, we're taking you. We're taking. First of all, you can't get money for free. They want like yes, yeah. security. Now they're taking your house, you know. So oh my gosh, if you know, if you don't have a rich uncle or friends who believe in you, or you're not particularly lucky, the only mm -hmm. option you have is the grant ecosystem. 
it's we call it uh, the donor treadmill in the valley of death because 80% of all startups fail to go from pre-seed to series A in mm. Uganda because that funding isn't there. Like the moment you start to scale, like validating your product, it's not there. I'm just lucky that enough ah. people have heard about what I'm doing and seen my passion and wanted to participate. But what happens is most people go for a pitch competition mm. or they apply to one of the, you know, the challenges by the UN or the World Bank and they get a grant equity free right. and that's what they use. But you end up having sad cases where a company devotes half of its team to chasing grants. You have staff on deck who just fill out grant paperwork every single day. Wow. And that reduces capacity, you know? And sometimes we laugh at them because you're like, oh, you guys have become, you've switched your business model from customer first to donor first. Like, I mean, at this point. You know? So it's, it's, it's a really big gap with so much potential. There's so much new stuff to do in Africa. Data, you know, data is, is coming to the forefront. I'm in fintech. COVID has shook the whole world. EdTech is going to be such a big thing. With all this intercontinental policy, regulation, technology is going to be, but we need funding, yeah. you know? Yeah. We need funding. Like, I'm willing to talk to funders who are not even into fintech. Like, if you're serious yeah. and you actually have money and you're not BSing and you want to invest mm-hmm. in Ghana, Abraham Banadawa on LinkedIn, I will point you to my peers in your sector. There's just that valley of death where so many good ideas go to pasture and a few of them, you know, a company will see you on your last legs and they'll just buy the rights to your technology. And eventually, I mean, it's like how mobile money came in Uganda. It was created by an individual and he wanted a partnership with the, with the big companies. They refused to give it to him on his terms and he failed to raise outside funding. When he was down, they bought the, 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 the IP. And now these are billion dollar innovations. Yet you have people coming up with like ridiculous stuff. Like what if we make a juicer that texts you when your juice is ready? I don't like, sometimes you read African investments. You're like, do we really need those? But you read the Silicon Valley ones. And honestly, everything really focusing on dogs and, and cats and, you know. Just, just look, up a con- look up a company called Juicero. They made juicers that didn't work, but they got so much funding because the cost of capital, you know, it's a very funny model in Silicon Valley that you go, you raise money. And then as a VC, you have to allocate the money because if you don't allocate all the money within the first three to five years, people can back out of your fund and give the money to someone else. So now people are just looking for ideas where to put the money at. And hopefully with time, capital allocation on the global market will balance out and you'll have more investment in emerging markets. My, my favorite stupid idea in Africa, I remember it was like 2016, seven different apps got, found, got funded by guys like Google, like Microsoft and whoever. All these apps did was tell farmers the market price. One, you could Google the market price. Two, the average farmer doesn't have a smartphone, so he can't download your app. Three, he knows the market, he can bike to it. Four, the problem with farming isn't 
that doesn't know the price, he doesn't have storage to keep his goods long enough for the price to go up so that he can sell at a profit, right? 21 of these apps were created. Seven, 11, 11 made it into like a listicle somewhere. By the end of the year, seven of them had funding. Uh, I think three of them managed to pivot. The other eight just died. Like pivot right away, right? Wow. Like, who, like which farmer in the early 2010s, right? Like yeah. had both a smartphone and a, 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 a mobile That's a plan. So, <laughs> but wow. because it sounds like what they think the problem is, mm. they got money. So it's capital allocation on a global scale and also like local input. Like I see it with, like, with, with successful, successful startup CEOs on the continent, they always end up coming back to create like a fund. I think I, I really appreciate them because I, I don't want to butcher his name. So I just call him E. He's, uh, he did, he was part of the founding team of Andela and I think Flutterwave, right? Successful. Mm-hmm. And now he's, he's, he's back in Nigeria and he's, you know, investing and helping foreign money find quality investments. So we need that. We need someone who can tell mm-hmm. guys, this would work in Los Angeles. Yeah. It won't work here. This is what will work here. Guys who can leverage their trust and their success to get more money flowing on, on the continent and outside of just the typical four markets, which is, you know, Nigeria, Egypt, Kenya, and uh, South Africa. The moment you will allow Burundians and East Africans, I will open my account. That I can tell you. Buy those uh, shillings, uh, treasury bonds, and make it rain after a couple of years because I'm buying for the long run, my friends. So I'm, I'm betting that East Africa will do much better in like five to 10 years. So everything that's happening in the region, I'm rooting for that. Yeah. Keep the faith. <laughs> I shall (laughs) (laughs) keep them safe. So, for people who are listening to us, the moment you launch for non uh, Ugandans, what do you want to tell them? Uh, Speak to the Ugandans and then speak to the rest. Um, Yeah, if you're in Uganda, you can sign up today. Sign up takes about two and a half minutes. Sign up all the way to investment takes about 11 minutes. Because you do have to do EKYC, but if you have if you have a phone, a bank account, and a national ID, you can sign up and start investing today uh, for as little as hundred thousand Uganda shillings. Any questions? You can feel free to reach reach out to me. And this is to the whole world, right? Like I'm very active on Twitter and LinkedIn, and my name is Abraham Banadawa on both of those platforms. Spell it the way you hear it; <laughs> it will come up ask questions we're looking forward to giving everyone access to what we believe are the best investments mm. uh, in the region we will be trying to demand and regulations and everything factor then we should be expanding into a couple of other key markets but right now you the return is great on ugandan investments and the security the risk is quite palatable. It won't give you heartburn, won't keep you up at night. Your money is safe. Why should you settle for giving your money to like JP Morgan and Bank of America or this hedge fund when they're going to turn around, bring it here, 
make a make a huge profit and just give you a small slice you know we're we're open for business and be my friend and share ideas you know ask me stories about farming and investing (laughs) including your mom (laughs) (laughs) that's great but yeah i hope really for the future i'm i hope we'll we'll be around and we'll start this the way you're starting a farming company now uh, you're into fintech i hope that because we're in finance they just say the more hedge funds will come along you know private equity african things because as much as I like to read uh, some Wall Street, not not like I get information. Sometimes you do need to see people who look like you who are investing in the same in the same background. They just say so. Hearing about the Dunlop with the Bill Ackman, and although I re- I do have the principles book by the way, Ray Dalio. I'll in- mm-hmm. invite people. It's a heavy book, huh? It's more like the Bible of. <laughs> right? right. I mean, you don't read it in yeah. one sitting, huh? It's. Yeah, I I keep I keep. I keep a copy of it. Right? Oh, man, he's really good. Like in case I'm not home, ah. you just like, okay, what happened? It will be fine. There you <laughs> you go. I will even invite people to follow him, Ray Dalio, on Twitter and uh, Instagram because he has all these, you know, snippets of what he's giving away every every day, I think, or every three days, and it's okay. dope. So just because you love books and na na na. I'm reading this. It's called The Bottom Billion, and it's from a professor from uh, Oxford University, Paul Collier, or Paul Collier. I don't know how to say it. I'm pretty sure he's English. I'm gonna. I'm not gonna lie. I'm really fed up with the things like this because on the paper it says there's a child soldier with an AK-47 and oh. the bottom million billion. Sorry, that, and then that, that, that version of Africa. <laughs> you know what I mean? And I'm like, oh Lord Jesus. Okay, help us out. But there is another book from, I'm going to butcher his name, Closing the Gap, Shisili Mahwala, a South African mm-hmm. professor. It's about fourth revolution. So this Let is another, it I, sure. it's, it's a, I, I mean, I read it. I was like, I, I hope to have him on either African Tech Roundup or Parole because it's a different version of how we speak about Africa. And in his case, he's really focusing on South Africa and mm. it gives you a different perspective. You, it, you know, like, you don't read like, oh, these guys, why this nation is failing or oh, has failed. It will never grow. Oh, I mean, discovered though. Let this child alone. You know what I mean? It's it's a thing where they call it uh they, they call it poverty pornography. Give people, give people the images they expect. And yeah, uh, our platform is called Level because we want to give everyone a level chance at improving their finances. We'll have, you know, in a few years, we can do a retrospective and see how people's lives changed by using yeah. our marketplace and oh, can take be- pictures and give them you know free free pictures on like shutterstock and all these <laughs> these content sites so they, they can have successful pictures of africans you know like you know there is this group called apo group and it's about like giving us a new africa and i was talking to one of this to the ceo and i said to him it's like now i can tell my friends to google africa and it's not like this picture from Ethiopia, you know, the 1970s picture of yeah. like, our, uh, I know you can see some people smiling, you know, some people tra- traveling, you know, yeah. <laughs> you know, and like, you know, Cap, Cap, Verde, Cap Verde, it's in Africa or Cape Town is in Africa. So thank you very much, Monsieur Abraham Banadawa or Banadawa, I don't know. 
I'm trying to say with the Burundian accent, Vanadawa. We don't say the B, Vanadawa. Oh, interesting. Very melodious. (laughs) There you go. That's who we are. (laughs) Thanks very much and have a great one. Uh, My pleasure.